Hello? Um, so I'm Sarah, and um, I'm from the Social Justice Cooperative, and this is Luke, and we've been organizing this talk. Um, and we just, we've been organizing it with the Technology and Culture Forum. Um, and we're actually passing around a sign-up sheet for SJC, um, and so if you guys want to sign up and learn out more about our club. Um, and then also, our web address is um, web.mit.edu slash justice, um, and so you can find more about our organization that way. Um, and now I'll introduce Amy McCreeth, who's going to introduce Professor Chomsky. Great. Thank you, Sarah. My name is Amy McCreeth. I'm the coordinator of the Technology and Culture Forum at MIT. And it's been a great pleasure working with the Social Justice Cooperative to bring you this program this afternoon. We're all looking forward, of course, to hearing what Professor Chomsky has to say about the militarization of space and science. Before we begin, I want to draw your attention to a few upcoming programs that if you're here today, my guess is you'd be interested in these programs as well. The first is a program that we're doing, again, with the Social Justice Cooperative, and it's on uh, depleted uranium. It's an all-day symposium on March the 6th here at MIT, and there's um, information about this program in the lobby on a sheet that looks like this. Also on March the 31st, the Technology and Culture Forum will be putting on a panel discussion on the topic of evil. And uh, this topic has come up, obviously, because you hear the word evil an awful lot in political rhetoric these days. And we're going to take a look at whether that term has a place in political rhetoric and if it has any meaning um, in our day and age. So we'll have scientific and theological views on the topic of evil. And that panel features James Carroll, who you may know if you read the Boston Globe. To find out more about the Technology and Culture Forum and the Social Justice Cooperative, do pick up information in the lobby or go to the MIT homepage, and you can find us through that homepage. I do need to cover a few logistical things before we get started today. Professor Chomsky is going to be speaking for about 45 minutes, and after that we'll have over an hour for questions from you. We do need to be out of the auditorium at about 3 o'clock. So we'll call things to a halt just before 3 o'clock. When we get to the questions, there are microphones set up in the aisle, in two aisles, and the lights will come up so you can find your way to them. And we'll just go back and forth from one microphone to the other. And we do ask that um, you ask a question if you come to the microphone rather than making a statement. We appreciate your cooperation with that. Um, we do have some people here this afternoon who have some clearance from us uh, because they're with the press to take some flash photographs during the talk. But we'd ask that the rest of you respect the fact that lots of flash uh, lights going off in Professor Chomsky's face is really fairly distracting. And so please do refrain from flash photography during the talk this afternoon. After our event is over today, if you want to review anything that you heard or if you have a friend who couldn't come today who'd like to hear what Professor Chomsky had to say, uh, you can refer them to the Technology and Culture Forum homepage where they can click through and get to an audio archived uh, version of this event. It will be, the talk will be audio archived at our, at our page on the web and you can listen to it in the future and refer others to it. And finally, we have a special award to give out today to the people who've traveled the furthest to be with us. Big fans of Professor Chomsky who came all the way from Dublin. 
So please give a round of applause to Allison and Lee, who are here from Dublin for today's event. They get the first question, he says. <laughs> uh, Professor Chomsky has spoken in this auditorium hundreds of times, although he claims that at one of his talks back in the late 60s, only six people showed up. <laughs> so it feels kind of funny introducing him, because most of you know an awful lot about him. But uh, let me say a few words, uh, just in case you missed something. <clears throat> professor Chomsky is an institute professor of linguistics at MIT. He's been here since 1955, sort of. Uh, in addition to being at MIT, he's also been all over the world several times, participating in all sorts of social actions and doing uh, a lot of work on behalf of those who, uh, who need to have someone help them find their voice and uh, working for social change in so many wonderful ways. He's an honorary, has an honorary degree from more than 20 universities worldwide. And in addition to transforming his field of linguistics, he's written over 30 books on social issues, political issues, political economy, corporate media, globalization, and all sorts of topics uh, that we all care about very much. And to, for that, we're extremely indebted to him. Uh, if you go to Google and do a search on his name, you'll find that you get about 300,000 hits compared to three million hits for Janet Jackson. <laughs> but despite this fact, we know that inquiring minds understand that Noam Chomsky is America's greatest attraction. And we're very glad to have him here today. Actually, that uh, reference to the talk where maybe a dozen people showed up, I might have been exaggerating, is, is rather relevant to the topic. Uh, this was uh, actually in, I think it would have been about, about 1969 or 1970. Uh, at that time, uh, MIT was close to 100% Pentagon funded, a very tightly linked to the military in many ways, a very pretty conservative institution where it was changing, but it was pretty quiet. Uh, the uh, topic that day was uh, something that uh, was about uh, government uh, repression, programs of government repression, uh, which were far more serious than anything that's happening today, far more serious. Uh, but nobody cared much about them. That's why there were only a few people here. Uh, today, much significant, but much less severe repressive programs uh, have uh, elicited quite a lot of protest. Uh, the immediate uh, reason for that talk was the uh, murder of a Black Panther uh, organizer, Black organizer, uh, by a Gestapo-style assassination set up by the FBI. Uh, had just come back from Chicago at its funeral, uh, and uh, we wanted to try to arouse some interest in the uh, COINTEL Pro uh, operations of the government, which were a massive uh, uh, state 
repression uh, program that ran through four administrations carried out by the National Political Police, uh, leading all the way to political assassination, as in this case, but very broad. Anyway, nobody much was interested. Uh, if you go back a few years, that wouldn't be true today, I'm sure. Uh, also, if you, had, if you go back a few years earlier and you uh, looked, say you walked down the halls at MIT, uh, of MIT, it wouldn't look at all like this audience today. It would have been uh, polite, well-dressed, uh, white males, period. Few scattered exceptions. Uh, well, that, it's, it's different now. It's a much more civilized place uh, in many respects. And these are things that have happened all over the country, and they uh, do indicate that uh, things can change. In fact, right at about that time was the first time that issues of uh, militarization of science, uh, militarization of space was not such a big issue then, but militarization of science were just becoming a significant issue on campus significant enough so that uh, the campus was virtually closed down for about two weeks in, during student activities, which began with a takeover of the student center and went on for a couple of weeks and finally led to a, a day in which the institute was officially closed uh, in order to discuss the question of social responsibility of science and technology. Uh, which by then was a huge campus issue and a few years earlier had been non-existent. And it's led to changes and the issues I think are very serious today and it doesn't hurt to uh, look back a few years and see how much has been changed uh, thanks to primarily student activism, uh, which uh, uh, here, other places, and uh, there's no reason to think that uh, that process has come to an end. The student activism and the act general activism, mostly young people, had a democratizing and civilizing effect on the society. Uh, it also led to an extremely severe reaction, and we're, not, we're still in the midst of that reaction, which took many forms. People with power and privilege don't give them up easily, uh, and that struggle continues and will continue, uh, go on, uh, and it's a the moment, in my opinion at least, at a pretty ominous state, uh, since it, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that by now the stakes have gotten so high that issues of survival actually arise uh, for the species even. Uh, well, let's, uh, these going to the topic, militarization of science and space, uh, this in part has to do with issues of world domination, uh, hegemony, in part it has to do with uh, issues of the domestic uh, economy and society. A militarization of science and space is extensively involved in both. Uh, so let me start with the economy and go on a little bit to uh, uh, broader issues of global dominance. Uh, if you want to talk about the economy, a good place to start is uh, with the most uh, respected expert, sometimes called St. Allen. Uh, Alan Greenspan, who presided over the economy of the glowing economy of the 1990s with great pride uh, and uh, just gave his uh, congressional uh, review a couple of days ago, closely watched by financial markets, uh, other businesses, uh, 
economists and so on, big detailed analysis of his uh, picture of the state of the economy and what to do about it. Uh, and uh, you can, what he described I think is pretty accurate as far as I know. Uh, you can explain it in polysyllabic words or you can put it simply, and since time is pretty short, I'll put it simply. Uh, the basic principle that he enunciated and that he understands is that the, the, the basic principle on which the economy is based is that you have to make rich people happy and you have to make everybody else frightened. Uh, that's a crucial condition for what's called health of the economy. And if you take courses in advanced economics, they put it in different ways, but uh, it's about what it comes down to. And Greenspan understands it very well. Uh, the logic is very simple. If you make rich people very happy, then maybe they'll invest some of their money uh, at home and maybe that'll trickle down to the rest of you and maybe you'll have a job and you know, have something to eat and so on. On the other hand, if rich people are unhappy, none of that happens uh, because uh, the society is very remote from a democratic society. Uh, Decision-making is highly centralized in the hands of concentrated wealth and privilege and those are the decisions that matter. You can read it on the op-ed pages of the New York Times today in bigger words, but uh, that's the essential principle. So if you're a homeless person in the street, uh, your main goal has to be to ensure that the guy riding by in the limousine is satisfied, because if he is, maybe something will trickle down to you. Uh, what about the rest of the population outside of the, and the way you do this, as St. Alan explained, uh, is by uh, ensuring that the rich have no responsibilities or very limited responsibilities to, to pay for what this happens in the society. So, you know, sharp tax cuts uh, directed to the rich, uh, other techniques of corporate tax evasion and so on, a whole network of things like that. Uh, that makes rich people happy, so we have hope for a, a healthy economy. Uh, everyone else has to be frightened, uh, and uh, St. Alan has been quite explicit about this uh, in describing his the health of the economy that he supervised over the past 10 years. Uh, regularly in his congressional testimony, he's been saying that uh, the economy, which he's very proud of, was uh, working so well because, uh, for one reason, because of what he called a growing worker insecurity. Uh, in more technical terms, that means a flexible labor market, uh, which is supposed to be a good thing. Growing worker insecurity, flexible labor market means that you go to sleep at night, you don't know if you have a job tomorrow. And that's very healthy for the economy uh, because it, if, you, if workers are insecure, uh, they're not going to ask for decent wages, uh, they're not going to try to organize, uh, they're not going to try to get benefits, uh, they won't care if uh, corporations carry out uh, illegal actions to undermine health and safety regulations or to prevent union organizing as they were essentially authorized to do almost officially uh, by the current incumbents in Washington during the Reagan phase. Uh, the, uh, I mean, they may care about it, but they won't do anything about it because they're too insecure and too frightened. And that's very healthy for the economy. And it uh, translates into economic consequences. So during the period of, this is 
what's called outside the United States, of the period of what are called outside the United States uh, neoliberal measures. Uh, we don't have a word for it in the United States because it's better not to have a word for something that you don't want people to think about and discuss. So we have no way of referring to the economic policies that have been implemented in the United States and around the world in the past 20, 25 years. Uh, that's in part a reaction to the democratizing uh, uh, activism of the 60s. It's part of a way of trying to restrain it around the world. Uh, but uh, what's called sometimes globalization or the Washington consensus and neoliberalism elsewhere, uh, those policies do have economic consequences. Uh, one consequence is that, uh, and growing worker insecurity is one of the ways to implement them. There are other ways. Uh, the student debt is another way, for example. Uh, students could be much more free to be, take time out for activism back in the 60s, uh, but, and they're much less free today because of the disciplinary effect of huge student debt. That, uh, I don't have to explain, you know, poses a burden and um, limits on what you can do. That's the main purpose of it. Uh, that's why Tony Blair in England is uh, now, uh, the Labor Party is uh, demanding uh, uh, private uh, t uh, rise in tuition to go to colleges. Uh, one reason is it keeps out the wrong kind of people, uh, but a more important one is that it imposes, a it imposes discipline on those who do go through. They're going to end up indebted, controlled, not free, none of those dangerous things. And there are many other mechanisms, uh, eliminating uh, constraints on financial uh, on capital movement across borders is a major factor, also disciplinary. Uh, well, uh, the neoliberal policies do have effects. Uh, they have been associated with the uh, slowdown of uh, economic growth, uh, uh, productivity, growth of productivity. In fact, most macroeconomic measures have declined for the countries that kept to those rules. Uh, the more they kept to them, the worse the effects. The few countries that escaped it just ignored the rules, like the East Asian countries for a long time. Uh, uh, so that's one major effect, probably, at least associated with it. Uh, the, uh, domestically, the effects have been striking. Uh, for about 90% uh, of the population, the lowest 90% of taxpayers, uh, real uh, income has, uh, in fact, uh, declined by about 7% from the mid-1970s when these policies were instituted until the year 2000, the last good statistics. That's pretty unusual in economic history for a long period of uh, stagnation and decline for most of the population. Uh, the, uh, and uh, people, and uh, in addition to that, work hours have increased. So the U.S. has by now the highest workload in the industrial world. And benefits, which were never very great, have declined. Uh, and a lot of other harmful effects that uh, people don't like. Uh, well, if they don't like the effects, they might do something about it. I mean, it is a very free country in many ways. It's not a very repressive state. can't be. Sometimes it can, but uh, only if people allow it to be. The, and uh, they might do something about it. And that's dangerous, so you have to keep them quiet. 
and uh, the best way to keep people quiet and passive, one of the best ways is to just frighten them. Uh, so there's a constant uh, effort that's been going on since for the last almost 25 years, roughly this period, uh, to conjure up uh, demons that are about to destroy us. Uh, so you have to agree to accept heavier workloads, uh, lower salaries, uh, lower prospects, and so on, because if you don't, uh, we're going to be destroyed by the demons. Uh, the latest ones are Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda, and before that it's a whole host of others, uh, Grenada, Nicaragua, and Libya, you know. The 1988 election, you may recall, won by the father of the current incumbent, George Bush, uh, was won on a strict race card. He was way behind in the polls until the Republican uh, uh, PR people pulled out uh, Willie Horton, and then the election was run on the platform, if you don't vote for me, uh, black criminals are going to rape your sister. Uh, some of you are old enough to remember that one, and we'll have something like that next time. Uh, the, uh, but if you can keep the population sufficiently frightened uh, and passive, then maybe they won't look and pay too much attention to what's happening to them, like the uh, uh, decline in uh, real income for 90%, while for 0.01%, uh, one hundredth of a percent, uh, income went up six, uh, 600%. Uh, there's been a staggering concentration of wealth, also a sharp decline in uh, mobility during this period, and those are the kinds of things you just don't want people to pay too much attention to. Uh, we might ask on the side just how successful the economy actually was during this uh, period of, uh, uh, the, of which Alan Greenspan is so proud the last 10 years. It turns out not very great uh, growth rates. Uh, other indices were considerably lower than in the period from roughly the end of the Second World War up to the neoliberal programs, uh, which was much higher growth rate around most of the world. Also egalitarian growth, uh, initiation of social democratic policies and so on, that's been reversed over much of the world here too. In the 1990s, the per capita growth rate in the United States is approximately like Europe. Uh, productivity growth, which is greatly hailed if you measure it properly, is probably about the same as Europe. Uh, and in general, the, there's nothing much to write home about unless you happen to be up in the top few percentile, in which case it's very, it uh, really is a glorious period, great golden age. Uh, but not uh, for the population and not for, uh, and not even by standard economic measures, which themselves are highly ideological. Well, that's the so-called globalization period, the neoliberal period. Uh, St. Alan has uh, also given more detailed analyses of the economy, and they take us right to the topic for today. Uh, elsewhere, he's uh, pointed out that the marvels of the economy over which he's presided, it's called the new economy, uh, derived from uh, entrepreneurial initiative and consumer choice in a free market. Uh, that's why we have such an innovative society, as you can read on the uh, op-ed page of the New York Times today. Uh, 
St. Ellen ex expressed it more generally. And he even gave examples of entrepreneurial initiative and uh, uh, consumer choice and the free market that we were blessed with. Uh, here are his examples. Uh, computers, the internet, satellites, lasers, uh, transistors. And he added a couple others. Those are the main examples of innovation through consumer choice and entrepreneurial initiative. Well, as most of you probably know, they're textbook examples, not exotic examples, but textbook examples of uh, uh, innovation and creativity in the public sector, in the dynamic state sector of the economy, places like the MIT Electronics Lab, and Lincoln Labs, and so on. Uh, that's where the innovation took place and the creativity. Uh, and uh, we could add uh, a lot of other examples of, uh, uh, and, and this is a, the general way in which the economy works. Uh, it makes sense, if you want to keep the rich happy, it makes sense to socialize risk and cost. So make the public pay the cost, make the public take the risk, uh, and then if anything ever comes out of it, you hand it over to private tyrannies, what are called corporations, uh, and uh, they make the profit. That's a terrific way to keep the rich happy and then maybe everybody can make out somehow. And that's the fundamental way in which the economy works. Uh, and the examples that Greenspan picked, as I say, are textbook examples. I won't run through the details. And you could add a lot more. I won't run through them because you ought to know about them just from your own experience and background, if nothing else. If not, you can find out it's good literature on it. Uh, the, uh, in fact, some of them are almost ridiculous, like the internet was in the uh, public domain. It was publicly subsidized for almost 30 years before it was handed over to private corporations, and computers are quite the same. And so this runs through the rest. And we can add a lot more, like, say, take uh, uh, aerospace, uh, including the airline industry, which uh, relies very heavily on public subsidy. A lot of this is under the cover of defense. So we're defending ourselves from some monster, and therefore we have to put public funds in these things. Uh, the the uh, aircraft industry, the uh, uh, aeronautical industry, uh, no, no, again, no reason to give the details because they're familiar, uh, but it also provides the basis for uh, tourism. Tourism is largely based on uh, 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 air traffic, and tourism is the main, what's called, service industry in the country. Uh, so we can add that one in. Uh, Computer-controlled uh, machines, uh, numerical programming, process, uh, programming is also actually largely developed here. Uh, the uh, extends to the uh, uh, containerization, which is the centerpiece of current what's called trade, rather misleadingly, but what's called trade is based heavily on containerization, which was developed in the U.S. Navy at public expense and public risk and handed over to the private industry. Same is true of the growing uh, biotech uh, industries today, very heavily relying on publicly funded uh, R&D. Uh, in fact, the crucial part of it, same is true of the pharmaceutical industry, uh, and in fact, uh, it's pretty hard to find an exception. Uh, it goes well beyond that. So in the 
1970s and the early 80s, some of you will be able to remember, there was a lot of concern in the United States about the decline of American industry relative to particularly Japan, but also Europe. Uh, corporate managers were simply not picking up. Uh, they were making gross errors of management, which is not unusual, uh, and were, picking up, were not picking up the new flex, um, flexible uh, production techniques that were being developed in uh, Japan and also applied in Europe, and U.S. industry was falling behind. Uh, so there was a need to carry out a program called Reindustrializing America. It started in the late Carter, carrying through in the Reagan administration. Well, how do you, re how do you reindustrialize America? The usual way, uh, the Pentagon uh, developed programs uh, to design what they called the factor factory of the future with uh, high level of automation, uh, taking over, you know, borrowing, if the poor do it, we call stealing. If we do it, we call borrowing. The technology and uh, management techniques that had been developed elsewhere. Uh, and uh, there was a program called uh, Mantech, uh, Manufacturing Technology, another called CAM, Computer Aided uh, Manufacturing, uh, big programs, publicly funded, which taught corporate executives here uh, how to carry out the kinds of programs that had been initiated and developed in uh, Japan, and Europe, and elsewhere, and America was reindustrialized by the standard method. Uh, if you take a look at these programs of designing the factory of the future, uh, same with numerical processing and most of the rest, uh, they also involve a form of class warfare. Uh, they are designed in such a way as to increase the uh, managerial control over the production process and to de-skill uh, workers and machinists and others and to uh, 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 reduce their control of the process. This was done even when it was counter to profit. It's well discussed in a book by Dave Noble, who was on the faculty here at the time, Forces of Production, and I'll do it in detail. And it also increased the technological component, the capital component of manufacturing, decreasing uh, and impoverishing the labor component. Uh, so it's a form of uh, what you might call class war, uh, conducted under the auspices of the military, uh, and in this case without even much of a pretext of uh, defense against anyone. Uh, sometimes there's a pretext, like computers. Computers were developed mostly here, around here in the 1950s, uh, under the pretext uh, largely of air defense. Uh, we were going to defend ourselves from uh, you know, airplanes. Uh, I, can, I was here at the time and remember those days. And, uh, the people working on the program, uh, as far as I could see, uh, thought that maybe the systems they were coming, up again, uh, were coming up with could defend the United States from a World War I uh, bomber uh, piloted by Snoopy with luck but had nothing to do with the era of uh, jet planes and uh, uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles and so on. But under that cover, the SAGE system and others, uh, computers were developed. They were reduced to the scale where you could actually sell them. Uh, uh, the first mainframe company, DEC, uh, came out of that program. Uh, IBM was, meanwhile, learning how to uh, shift from uh, typewriters and you know, data processing machines to computers. Uh, and uh, so it, it continues. 
that that was under a military cover largely. Uh, sometimes in the early 60s, it shifted to uh, a space, uh, actually late 50s, early 60s, to a space cover. So it was extremely important uh, to put a man on the moon for no known reason uh, other than to provide uh, massive funding for a high technology industry. Uh, there was no other purpose. Putting a man on the moon, you could get people excited about and they'd watch television, that's the Apollo project. Uh, when people got bored with watching some clown stumbling around on the moon for no purpose, the program was dropped because it had lost its purpose. If you want to explore the moon, about the worst possible way to do it is to put a human being up there for obvious reasons. Uh, but it's a great way to uh, pour money into uh, high technology industry. This required you know, massive uh, increase in computer ability and so on. So the right people got happy from it, while the poor people uh, this time were, as long as they were willing to watch it on television, they were willing to pay for it. And there was also a story about competing with the Russians and so on and so forth. Uh, but uh, that's uh, uh, pretty much that's the way the system usually works. Uh, actually, if you look at uh, Alan Greenspan's list of examples of the entrepreneurial uh, initiative and consumer choice, uh, there's, there is one case that he listed that isn't a textbook example uh, to prove the opposite namely a textbook example of the role of the state-directed economy in socializing risk and cost. Now, that one exception is transistors, and it's an interesting exception. Uh, if you look at it, it gives you more insight into how the so-called free enterprise system works. So transistors were, in fact, developed in a private corporation, uh, AT&T, Bell Labs, uh, and they were developed at first for scientific reasons interest, technological and scientific reasons. Uh, however, how was AT&T able to do this? Well, AT&T was a government, uh, was, was a monopoly, uh, uh, granted monopoly power by the state. Being a monopoly, a state with power granted by the state, it was able to charge monopoly prices, and therefore it had uh, excess. It could use them to build a great laboratory, build labs. Uh, when the system was broken up, the lab also shifted sharply towards more short-term applied projects. But back in the glory days, when it uh, had state-guaranteed monopoly prices, it was able to do things like you know, developing transistors and radio astronomy, and developing information theory and all sorts of things. Uh, the, it was pretty regular flow from here to Bell Labs in the 50s. 60s. I also went down a number of times. Uh, the, uh, uh, so, uh, furthermore, Bell Labs, in developing the uh, transistor, was using wartime technology. Uh, during the war, the Second World War, the United States had something pretty close to a command economy, uh, which can be pretty efficient. Uh, and in fact, that's the fastest growth rate by far of uh, U.S. Uh, uh, in, in the history of the U.S. economy, industrial production uh, more than tripled, close to quadrupled, uh, under state-directed controls. Uh, it was a very uh, huge growth period. Uh, the, uh, and the same was true in other countries, like 
Germany, England, and so on. Uh, the, uh, uh, f uh, furthermore, once transistors were developed, you had to sell them somehow. And there were no very limited commercial applications for them. Uh, so they were uh, then, at this point, another element of the state-directed economy enters, namely procurement. So procurement was by the military. Uh, by, in fact, as late as 1958, about 10 years after transistors were invented, 100% uh, of the high-performance transistors being produced by Western Electric, the AT&T production outlet, 100% were being used by the military. And that gave the basis for figuring out how to design uh, high-performance uh, transistors, you know, shot in the arm for microelectronics and so on, uh, through military procurement almost entirely. And finally, as usual, they sort of fed their way into the uh, consumer economy. But the fact is that in even this one case, which is not a textbook example of, uh, of the state sector in innovation and production, even in this case, consumer choice was virtually zero and market entrepreneurial initiative was extremely low. Uh, in fact, throughout, uh, we find that that's true. Uh, and it is understood. Uh, it's, if you look at the technical literature, uh, it's well understood that even after these uh, innovations at public cost and risk uh, do enter the market, it's a very restricted market. Uh, so I'll just quote, uh, sorry for the big words, but I want to quote an actual description in a, one of the standard technological tech, uh, tech studies of what's called competing in uh, electronics today uh, points out that uh, oligopolistic competition and strategic integration among firms uh, and governments rather than the invisible hand of market forces uh, conditions today's competitive advantage and internal division of labor in high-tech industries. It's another way of saying there isn't much of a competitive market. There are big mega corporations which are linked to one another and cooperate and interact and are supported by powerful states. And it gives a minimal degree of competition in high-tech uh, industries. Uh, and that is the market. And in fact, it's pretty much the market in other things, too. Uh, so the reason why, uh, say, television ads for uh, automobiles a feature uh, people like, what's her name, one who gets three million hits, uh, and, and uh, you know, and uh, you know, cars riding on the moon and so on and so forth. Uh, the reason for all of that is because they're not really, there's no real competition for car in the, in the automobile market. If, the, if it was a competitive market, uh, advertising would say, here's what we ha have available, you know, you like it, buy it. Uh, in fact, Go back a century, that's pretty much what advertising was. But once you've cut back competition to the point where everybody's doing approximately the same thing, and, uh, you try, and the corporations don't want too much competition because that's going to lower profits, so they integrate with one another and so on, uh, then you have to sell things by some other means, you know, because people are excited about something that doesn't have much to do with the thing you're selling. And an enormous, just, you know, all you have to do is look at advertising on anywhere, television, anywhere else, to see that that's a core part of the uh, 
advertising business, and it's a reflection of the fact that competition is quite restricted in most areas, and some areas where you really find it, but it's certainly not at the core of the economy. Uh, so St. Allen, while he understands the basic principle, namely keep the rich happy and keep everybody else frightened, uh, he's way off base on how the economy really works. Uh, the way the economy really works is quite different, and militarization of science is a core part of it. Uh, well, there is a, uh, I should say that the trade agreements and so on contribute to this. So take, say, NAFTA. Uh, there was, uh, among people who were serious, there were plenty of critics of NAFTA, like the majority of the population. Uh, but among serious critics of NAFTA 10 years ago, uh, there was very little talk about job flight. Uh, to, uh, from the United States to Mexico. I mean, it was expected to take place, but at a low level. There was a much more serious attack on working people through NAFTA, a far more serious one. Uh, namely, NAFTA provided employers with a method of increasing worker insecurity, the core of a healthy economy, as St. Allen explains, flexible labor markets. How does it do that? By offering, by offering employers to, um, uh, allowing them to use the threat of job transfer. That doesn't mean that they're ever going to do it, you know, but if you want to break union organizing efforts illegally, of course it's all illegal, if you want to break union organizing efforts, hence keep down wages, uh, reduce benefits, and so on, uh, one way to do it is to put up a big sign saying, you know, transfer job or something, uh, propagandizing the workforce to feel uh, that if they do join the union, uh, you're just going to lose your job because we're going to go to, uh, you know, we're going to go to Mexico. Uh, this has been well studied by uh, uh, people, mainly Kate Bronfenbrenner at the uh, Cornell uh, Industrial Relations Department. Uh, under, uh, the studies are published under NAFTA rules because Clinton was compelled to uh, allow into the NAFTA rules some meaningless uh, side conditions uh, having to do with workers' rights and so on. And one of them is uh, carrying out studies to find out what's going on. Of course, nobody ever hears about them because it's the wrong message. Uh, but the message is that uh, 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 illegal efforts by corporations to uh, undermine union organizing shot up after NAFTA and largely worked. They did frighten people. They helped increase uh, worker insecurity uh, in particular industries. I mean, it didn't happen in the construction industry because you can't make a credible threat there. Uh, but it did happen in industries where you could make a credible threat of transfer. Uh, in fact, it turned out that most of those threats weren't intended seriously. So if the union organizing nevertheless took place, as happened in scattering of cases, most of the time they didn't transfer it uh, because it, for other reasons. Uh, but it was a good threat, and it was a way to increase worker insecurity, and therefore, as Alan Greenspan and economic theory explains, uh, increases the health of the economy. The flexible labor market, so you don't have uh, irrational efforts to improve working conditions and uh, health uh, safety regulations, and, get decent wages and so on, all harmful to the economy under the guiding principles. Well, let's uh, turn to uh, militarization of space. That's an important new frontier. Uh, began in the late 50s, picked up with the Apollo project, uh, gave a 
big impetus to the computer industry, as incidentally do other state initiatives. So uh, during the 60s, in fact, since a tremendous uh, benefit to the so-called private computer industry are things like uh, uh, National Security Administration, uh, uh, the IRS, uh, even Medicare, you know, which needed tons of computing capacity and uh, awful lot. During the developing phase, that's where the profits were coming from, after the public had paid the, almost the entire cost of uh, research and development and taking of risk in the hard period. Uh, well, uh, by uh, the 1960s, uh, space was coming along. NASA uh, became a big part of the militarization. Actually, the, it, the militarization of science doesn't only include the Pentagon. It includes NASA, uh, the Department of Energy, which produces and controls nuclear weapons, and in fact, various other parts of the federal system. Uh, the, but uh, roughly, roughly call it the Pentagon system, loosely. Uh, instantly, uh, just another point about this, uh, I mentioned before at the beginning that if you go back, say, 35 years, uh, MIT was almost entirely Pentagon funded, either uh, big labs run by MIT involved in military work or else even the academic program. There's figures on this if you're interested. It came out of a commission that was set up, the Pound Commission, around 1970 under student pressure to look into the way MIT worked. And there's a lot of interesting information there. I was on the commission, so I remember it. Uh, uh, but it's published. Uh, the, um, uh, there has been a shift since then. So Pentagon funding, uh, not only at MIT, but across the country in R&D, has been declining. and. Uh, funding, federal funding from the, what are called the health-related uh, institutes, like the National Institute of Health and others, uh, that's been increasing. Uh, um, total federal R&D stays high, but it's been shifting in its distribution. Uh, and the reason for that is uh, apparent to uh, anyone in technology or anyone who pays attention to the economy. Uh, it's generally understood, in the, back in the 50s and the 60s and early 70s, the cutting age, edge of the economy was sort of electronics-based. And in order to get the public to pay the costs and take the risks for that, uh, the best way to do it is through the Pentagon or the space program or something like that that gives you a shot in the arm for the electronics-based industries. But it's been shifting, and the economy of the cutting edge of the future economy is expected to be biology-based. Uh, so genetic engineering, biotechnology, and so on. If you look at the spin-offs from MIT, the private businesses in the 50s and the 60s, they were small electronics firms, which then got bought up by you know, Raytheon and iTech and so on and so forth. But spin-offs from MIT faculty, now they're little uh, biotechnology firms. You know, take a walk around Kendall Square. Uh, and uh, it's that's, and they'll get bought up if they get anywhere by the big pharmaceutical companies and uh, industries, and uh, that's where the future is going to be. So therefore, you have to get the public to pay the costs and take the risks uh, for the next phase of the economy, and therefore you have you know annual double-digit growth in the NIH budget and so on and so forth, and the funding 
places like this shifts too. And here there are other pretexts. It's not, by now you can also have a defense against the enemy pretext, you know, for protection from bioterrorism and so on. But the main pretext has been uh, we're going to cure cancer or something like that. Uh, now, you know, if you talk to the scientists working on molecular biology they, in the Cancer Institute, I mean, don't really think they're going to cure cancer, but uh, uh, you can sell it to Congress and the public that way uh, and then go and do your work on big molecules and so on and so forth, uh, which will ultimately have the some kind of spin-off effect it's assumed and certainly contributes to science. Uh, but it's another form of uh, public control. And so the fear of bioterrorism, which is now being stimulated as a way to get the public to pay for these things, uh, is an interesting case because just as in the case of the uh, uh, arms race of the 50s and 60s, uh, government policies are increasing the threat of bioterrorism, pretty consciously in fact. I'll come back to that. And the same was true in the 50s and 60s when they were increasing the threat of uh, nuclear war and uh, uh, missile attacks and so on. Uh, those things go on in parallel and it's again important to make sure that people don't think about them, though it's pretty close to the surface. I'll give some examples. Uh, well, uh, so there has been a shift to some extent to uh, biology-based uh, uh, industries, although the core re advanced research program of the Pentagon, now DARPA, uh, they're still uh, through the Pentagon pr pursuing innovative efforts at the borders uh, in the biology-based uh, uh, areas too, like uh, neuroengineering or uh, uh, there's now a program which is highly touted as uh, what they call the future of warfare. Uh, which involves developing uh, man-machine interfaces. Ultimately, they hope person-to-person -person interfaces. Uh, and it's, uh, I don't know if it's going to be the future of warfare, as is claimed, uh, but it's certainly exploring the borders of uh, understanding in uh, uh, the neurosciences and related technologies, and therefore fulfilling the traditional role of DARPA, formerly ARPA, uh, to get the public to pay the costs of the, whatever is going to be the next phase of the economy. A lot of that's being done right here, in fact. Uh, well, let's uh, go to the exciting new frontier space. Uh, in, the fifth, in the 60s, it was under the cover of getting a man to the moon. Uh, in the, uh, by the 80s, people were bored with that. And uh, uh, the plan was um, SDI, you know, strategic defense initiatives, Star Wars informally, uh, to protect us from all these guys who are going to be shooting missiles at us. Uh, this went on into the Clinton years. Uh, during the Clinton period, there were quite important studies produced, and they're public, so you really ought to read them. They should be front page news. Uh, so about six years ago, there was an important study uh, by the Space Command, it's now the Air Force Space Command. Uh, called a vision for, 20, for the year 2020. That was about 1997, so approximately a 25-year vision. And it, uh, it's interesting reading. It's, it's, it's like a glossy pamphlet. It's meant 
you know, what they call it. It's like a PowerPoint presentation. For, so you have big pictures and graphs and all this sort of thing and simple words, you know, big print. Uh, but the basic story is uh, not unreasonable and pretty straightforward. Uh, it gives a little bit of history. It says that uh, if you look at history, uh, countries, including the United States, had to at first develop armies uh, to defend themselves. So the United States needed an army uh, to defend itself against the indigenous population who we were exterminating as we expanded across the national territory and to defend ourselves against uh, uh, Mexico when we stole half of Mexico and so on and so forth. For that, you needed armies and also intervention and so on. Uh, and then countries also developed navies, like you know the British had to develop a navy to defend themselves against uh, people in India and Africa and so on. Uh, and uh, as they describe it, they, they're pretty frank about it. They say they had to develop navies to protect uh, commercial interests and investment. Uh, and same with us. Uh, and now there's a new frontier, space, and we have to move on to control space in order to protect commercial interests and investment. Terms they use, quite frank, pretty accurate. Uh, the, uh, uh, how do we uh, do this? Well, uh, first of all, there's a background analysis, which has to do with so-called globalization, which is shared by the intelligence community. They've also put out long-term projections about the effects of globalization, and they agree with the military planners. Uh, they say that they think globalization is a wonderful thing. This means the particular corporate version of economic integration that's called globalization in the propaganda system it has nothing to do with globalization. But what's called globalization, uh, they say, is uh, going to lead to a widening economic divide, uh, economic stagnation in large parts of the world, uh, unrest, uh, uh, violence, uh, anger, uh, much of it directed against the United States, uh, increasing terror, probably proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. And because of these consequences of globalization, uh, we have to have better ways to control the world. Maybe these armies aren't going to be enough, uh, but uh, uh, the uh, ability to place uh, uh, um, uh, highly destructive uh, offensive weapons in space uh, may be able to allow us to handle the effects of globalization and the widening economic divide and uh, uh, stagnation and so on and bitterness and anger that it's expected to bring with it. Uh, and that's a shared with the intelligence community. Uh, other uh, uh, agencies of the Clinton administration, the Strategic Command, were meanwhile putting out quite important policy statements. They're first classified, then declassified for a couple of years. Uh, the most important one was called Essentials of Post-War Deterrence. came out around 1995. Big reanalysis of you know, what, how we carry out deterrence. Deterrence means uh, aggression. Defense usually means attack in the, uh, in the public, you know, if you translate words into their meanings. Uh, deterrence means uh, aggression and domination. Uh, so how do we handle post-Cold War deterrence? Uh, uh, well, they say, uh, and again, interesting reading. They say, first of all, it has to be based on nuclear weapons, including first strike, uh, the right to 
use nuclear weapons in a first strike, even against countries that have that are not only non-nuclear but have signed the, non, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Uh, nuclear weapons, they explain, are much better than chemical and biological weapons, although we have to develop those too, uh, because nuclear weapons have a much more dramatic effect. I mean, it's immediate, massive destruction and devastation instead of just the slow killing that comes with biological weapons. Uh, and therefore, they have to be the core of the program of deterrence. Uh, the, uh, uh, they also uh, developed uh, a version of what uh, in the Nixon administration was called the madman strategy. Uh, we have to look like lunatics. Uh, what they, the way they put it is they, have to, they say it's extremely important for uh, the U.S. posture to appear to be irrational and vindictive and to make it seem that elements in the government are out of control. Now, that frightens the world. If you're irrational and vindictive, and likely to use nuclear weapons uh, because your leaders are out of control, people get scared. Uh, the, the mafia would understand this very well. And international affairs are rather like uh, the mafia when you look closely. Uh, there's a, even a term in the diplomatic literature called credibility. You're supposed to maintain credibility. Uh, and maintaining credibility, again, is something understood by any mafia don. Uh, it's not enough for people to obey. They have to understand what happens to them if they don't obey. So if a storekeeper doesn't pay his protection money on time, it's not enough to go send the goons to get the money. You have to make an example of him, you know, beat him to a pulp or blow his head off or something like that. Now that establishes credibility and other people don't get any funny ideas. And maintaining credibility is a core element of international diplomacy. There's a lot of examples right up to the present. And it's often put pretty much that way without the appropriate mafia analogy. Uh, but uh, acting uh, irrational and vindictive is a way of maintaining credibility to make sure that people are properly frightened. Uh, the Nixon administration, this was designed by Nixon and Kissinger, this madman strategy, as it was called, and they even applied it. Uh, they applied it, and there's one case that's recently been carefully studied, and it turns out in 1960, Kissinger was very proud of his Harvard professor and so on, very proud of his ability to fine-tune programs, you know, you got them to work exactly the right way, and so on and so forth, led to catastrophe after catastrophe, as you'd expect. Uh, one of them was in 1969, when Kissinger's I wanted to signal to the Soviet Union that the U.S. was serious uh, in uh, refusing to negotiate a political settlement in Indochina. And the way they decided to signal that to the Soviet Union was by declaring a nuclear alert. You know, you send the strategic bombers up, uh, the Russians pick it up, they see it, that's the point. Uh, and uh, they're supposed to get frightened and back away from you know, trying to pursue the uh, diplomatic settlement that the U.S. didn't want. Well, uh, they only f forgot one thing, which they didn't notice. Uh, namely, at the time, there was a war going on between China and Russia, two nuclear powers. And it was, would have been very possible for, that the Russians would have taken that signal to mean a nuclear attack is coming. Uh, that would have been a reasonable way to interpret the signal. Well, luckily they didn't, or we wouldn't be around here to talk about it. Uh, but that was one of the small 
footnotes that was overlooked in the careful uh, strategic planning under the madman strategy. Uh, but knowing all that and many other cases, we have to use it again because we have to look irrational and vindictive and frighten people. So that's the Clinton administration, the doves. Uh, when we move on to the Bush administration, which is the old Reagan administration, remember, it's the old Reagan-Bush-1 administration, almost entirely, re mostly recycled, more reactionary elements recycled, uh, they've picked up the uh, Reagan-Bush-1 programs. So even before 9-11, there was a very substantial increase in military spending, actually the greatest increase since the Reagan administration came in, which isn't surprising. Same people, you know, same commitment. Uh, they're not conservatives. They believe in a very powerful, repressive state, very violent state, uh, so mainly working for the rich. So you um, have to have a, a big increase in military spending, uh, particularly 9-11 gave it a further impetus. Uh, uh, militarization of space has become a core element of this. And it also is called defense, but again, the word defense uh, doesn't tell you anything. It carries no information, you know, even in a technical sense. It's predictable. No matter what's going on, everybody's involved in defense. You know, Hitler's invading Belgium, it's defense. Uh, so the word is meaningless, carries no information. You have to look at it. And if you look at, at uh, a missile defense, which is core part of militarization of space, uh, none of the planners and none of the targets regard it as defense. They all regard it as an offensive weapon uh, for simple reasons. Uh, if missile defense were ever to be credible, you know, if it ever looked like it was going to work, uh, it would be a way of carrying out offensive military actions uh, without or with limited concern that there could be any retaliation. So it's a weapon of aggression. Uh, it's interesting to see that the Chinese uh, military analysts and the U.S. military analysts use virtually the same terminology in describing it. Uh, they say it's not just a shield, it's also a sword. Okay, it's an offensive weapon which relies on the fact that there may be a shield against retaliation. That's the way it's understood worldwide uh, and correctly. Uh, and it has, of course, consequences. And the consequences are known. You know, so intelligence analysts and others have been, agencies have been pointing out for years, and you can even read it in the public literature. You don't need classified documents. Uh, they've pointed out the obvious, that the potential targets are going to react. Uh, and uh, how will they react? Well, the weak will react by increasing terror. Uh, that's a... Uh, technique of uh, uh, deterrence that's available to the weak. They can threaten terror. So one effect is, a likely effect is increase in terror, which has been happening. Uh, but among the major powers, uh, the way they'll react is by uh, increasing their offensive military capacity so they can overwhelm any possible missile uh, shield and therefore eliminate the aggressive weapon in the hands of the U.S. And that's exactly what's been happening. Uh, so in uh, uh, Russia had been uh, reducing its offensive military forces, including nuclear forces, considerably, not very efficiently, but at least been reducing them. However, that's reversed. Uh, in 2002-2003, uh, Russian offensive military spending, in, sp spending for offensive weapons increased substantially by about a third. Uh, that includes uh, 
nuclear-armed missiles uh, on submarines and also uh, uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles on submarines, uh, which are in greatly increased the hazard to the United States. It's been going up sharply. Just last December, uh, the Russians announced that they're deploying new advanced missiles, uh, MIRV missiles, multiple warheads, uh, which they claim to be you know, the most uh, destructive and powerful in the world. Uh, that was December, and that's exactly what you'd expect. Uh, Russia also adopted uh, the Bush administration's first strike doctrine, so they're like us, they now have the doctrine that they can carry out a first nuclear strike. Uh, and they're also uh, putting their uh, missiles, their nuclear missile capacity on, uh, they're autom putting it on an automated uh, framework, launch on warning, it's called computer controlled missile launches. Uh, that is, at even at best, that's extremely hazardous because these automated systems are always making mistakes. Uh, in fact, it came very as any of you know who are in the field of technology, uh, you build a complex system, something's going to go wrong. Uh, in fact, there's a name for it in the professional field. It's called normal accident. Uh, if you make something complicated enough, normally something will go wrong because there's no way of controlling every contingency. Uh, and uh, uh, launch on warning of systems are automated systems, and if anything goes wrong with them, we're all dead, you know, because missiles go off and then they return and it's the end, goodbye. Uh, and it's come very close. Uh, in uh, uh, 1995, the Russian automated systems uh, picked up a, uh, uh, a rocket launch, I think it was U.S., maybe U.S.-Norwegian rocket launch, and uh, their computerized systems determined that it was a first strike. Uh, they have a 10-minute gap before the missiles go off while they get prepared. Uh, and uh, at eight minutes into this 10-minute gap, there was human intervention. Uh, somebody figured, look, this can't be a first strike, so they terminated it. Uh, and uh, we were two minutes away from total destruction. Uh, as the systems get more uh, destructive and the more automated, that gap reduces. So you're increasing the probability of a, a massively destructive normal accident. Uh, furthermore, since the uh, R Russians uh, took over neoliberal policies in the 90s, uh, the usual effects have taken place. Their economies collapsed. Uh, command and control systems have deteriorated, uh, meaning they don't work anywhere near as well as they used to, which wasn't so great. Uh, and that, again, increases uh, the risk, of course. Uh, that's exactly why the Rand Corporation and the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists and uh, well-known physicists concerned with these topics, like Steve Weinberg, uh, have been warning that the threat of uh, accidental nuclear war, is probably, which was always high, uh, is now greatly increasing uh, as a result of these uh, uh, defensive, uh, uh, the so-called defensive measures. Uh, that's Russia. China is, of course, doing the same. They recognize that they're the main target of all of this. So they're also increasing offensive military capacity. Uh, that uh, means that India responds. They want to keep more or less equal to China, uh, which means that Pakistan responds to the Indian threat, as you're now reading about that in the front pages. 
and it has a ripple effect uh, beyond. Uh, at the other end of Asia, uh, there's also a serious threat, uh, which we don't talk about in the United States publicly because it's an offshore U.S. military base in effect, uh, namely Israel. Uh, but the uh, strategic command does talk about it. Uh, they're worried about what happens to the world, and you know, so and publicly they describe. Uh, uh, they're well aware that Israel has a couple hundred nuclear weapons and chemical and biological weapons, and they say that this is. Uh, phrase is dangerous in the extreme, first of all in itself, because they can be used, uh, but also just because it impels others to proliferate uh, for balance and for deterrence in the obvious logic of deterrence. So it increases proliferation. Uh, while uh, the front pages are talking about Pakistan, uh, obscuring the fact that it's highly unlikely that U.S. intelligence didn't know about this while it was taking place. I mean. Uh, you know, a lot of it was even published in the Pakistani press. It'd be an idiot not to know that it was going on uh, while the Reagan administration was certifying Pakistan as not having nuclear weapons and uh, Colin Powell, national security advisor, was not noticing it somehow. Uh, so, you know, all right, let's say they somehow missed it. Anyway, it's been going on. Uh, but uh, in the case of Israel, it may also be going on. We, we don't know because it's not reported much. But there was a very ominous uh, lead story in Israel's major newspaper, Haaretz. It's only, they didn't put it in the English edition, so it's only in the Hebrew edition, uh, which uh, describes a, but you can be sure Iranian intelligence and so on are going to be reading it. Uh, the, uh, uh, described uh, just a couple of days ago, uh, it's a leak from the military, somebody in the military, and the leak says that uh, the United States is providing the Israeli Air Force, that's U.S. planes given to Israel, like F-16s and others. They're providing, uh, the U.S. is providing the U.S. advanced aircraft uh, based in Israel with uh, what they call, uh, translation of it would be special weapons. Well, special weapons probably means nuclear weapons. Uh, it's, uh, there'd be no other, that's standard terminology. And that's the way it's going to be interpreted by other intelligence agencies, even if they don't know about it already, which means probably nuclear warheads for uh, 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 jet bomber uh, missiles, which is a serious threat of proliferation if it's true. Even if it isn't true, the fact that it's reported is going, and it probably is, uh, will lead to this consequence. Well, uh, uh, in September 2002, as you know, the Bush administration announced its national security strategy, um, which did frighten a large part of the world, even the foreign policy elite here, the conservatives here. Uh, the, uh, when you announced the strategy was we're going to control the world by force and destroy any potential challenge uh, on the grounds that uh, we're not allowing anyone to have weapons of mass destruction. So if they have them, we have a right to destroy them. Uh, the major consequence of not finding weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, the major consequence is that it has uh, made this strategy far more dangerous. I mean, if you read the papers, every time they fail to find something, the bars for aggression go down. So today you can read Colin Powell saying, uh, well, they had the intent and ability 
uh, to produce weapons of mass destruction, and that justifies an attack. Okay, so now we're down to not possession or even programs, but just intent and ability. Well, you know, everybody just about has the ability. You could produce them in MIT chemistry and biology labs or probably high school labs. And intent is whatever Colin Powell says is the intent. Uh, so that means the new doctrine, uh, and this is the most ominous consequence of the failure to find weapons of mass destruction, uh, the new doctrine is you can attack anybody anywhere just because we feel like it. Because uh, they all have the intent and ability, intent if we say, and probably do have it, and certainly the ability anywhere. Uh, that's serious. Uh, but that's the doctrine. However, if you want it, if you announce a doctrine and you want it to be taken seriously, you have to carry out what's sometimes called an exemplary action. Uh, show people you're serious. Well, one, one case was attacking Iraq. That was the dramatic one. Exemplary shows we really mean it. Yeah, I'll stop. Uh, <laughs> gee, I've talked more than half an hour. I can't believe it. Uh, but another uh, consequence, and I'll make this quick, uh, was that immediately after the National Security Council, uh, Doctrine was uh, announced, the Air Force Space Command announced its program for the coming years, and that was very important. It's public. You can find it on their website, and you really ought to read it. Uh, they say we have to move from control of space, which was the Clinton Doctrine, to ownership of space, meaning no possible challenge can be tolerated. We own space. That follows from the national security strategy. Uh, and uh, they spell it out. That it's been spelled out. That means putting up space platforms with uh, highly destructive uh, weapons, uh, very intense surveillance of the whole world with you know hypersonic drones and all this kind of business, uh, which effectively allows instant attack without warning uh, anywhere. Uh, dis highly destructive instant attack without warning, and of course others will respond. Well, in order to pursue this, it's been necessary to undermine the whole treaty structure that prevents it, and I won't run through the details, but because there's no time, but uh, uh, this is what's been going on for years. Uh, in last, just last December, once again, uh, the United States voted virtually alone, picks up Micronesia and Israel and so on, uh, but essentially alone to uh, at the general at the general at the United Nations to uh, prevent to prevent the comprehensive te test ban treaty, uh, to prevent uh, reduction of nuclear weapons, uh, to ban the militarization of space, uh, and uh, uh, even voted against elimination of. Uh, uh, it voted against elimination of nuclear weapons in the Middle East, again alone, virtually, and uh, observing uh, environmental uh, uh, c conditions in arms control agreements. That one passed 156 to 1, and the other votes were more or less similar. It's also blocked putting preventive measures into the bioweapons treaties, uh, which causes and means a great uh, potential threat to the United States, uh, and so on. Uh, all of this is just a prescription for disaster. It's known, uh, and it's not surprising. In fact, from the point of view of, the, of our own intellectual culture, it's rational. That's the most frightening part. It's rational within the framework of the ideology and doctrines that we are taught from childhood to accept. Uh, and there's plenty of uh, history of it, of consciously increasing threats for 
uh, because just not because you want the threats, but because they're not important. You're supposed to be concentrated on being a, what's called a rational wealth maximizer. Short-term personal gain is what you're supposed to do. Nobody else matters. Uh, and uh, that means your children and grandchildren don't matter. Uh, you just are a rational wealth maximizer. Uh, that's drilled into your head from uh, television and uh, infancy up to graduate school. You've all gotten it in one form or another. Uh, and it leads to a general, and it's built into the institutions. That's the way the corporate structure works uh, and has to. Uh, and it's very deeply rooted. It's uh, highly dangerous. Uh, it, uh, if, it is con if it continues, it's pretty certain to lead sooner or later to a normal accident, uh, some kind of total disaster. Uh, the uh, uh, optimistic side of it is that it means that people like you, people who are involved in science and technology, uh, can play a significant role in reversing it, not just the policies, but the whole cultural framework in which it's embedded. And that has indeed happened. Uh, what happened at MIT 35 years ago is a good example. Plenty of other possibilities. Okay. Stop finally. <laughs>
fine economist, but a very decent person who really wants to help the poor and done important things. Uh, and what he's saying is that people who are objecting to outsourcing just don't have their economics straight. Uh, if they understood economics, they would know it's a good thing. Uh, and why is it a good thing? Well, because uh, it increases efficiency, uh, and efficiency increases the economic pie, and that's good for all of us. Uh, and if you don't allow corporations to outsource, they may die, and uh, then there won't be any jobs for anyone, and so on. Well, and then he says, we have a very innovative society, so we should be able to develop means of overcoming this. Well, everything he says is true in some abstract model of the international economy, which has absolutely no resemblance to reality. Uh, but in that model, it's true, and you can probably prove a theorem about it. Uh, in the uh, actual economy, it's very innovative, but not because of uh, private enterprise. It's, uh, it's innovative, yes, because of massive state intervention, exactly what's blocked for everyone else uh, by the uh, so-called globalization rules. So we're going to do it because we do anything we like, uh, but others can't do it. Uh, furthermore, that's the whole history of the modern world. That's why India, India is a, was a disaster, and. Uh, Britain became rich it's because of those relationships. Uh, and so it goes. So in the real world, yes, we're innovative, but not for his reasons. Uh, furthermore, uh, uh, even on his own terms, objecting to, suppose, that, let's take this abstract model that he's talking about. Suppose that corporations die in the United States. Well, it just means they're inefficient. Uh, so that means that he and I and you uh, can all get kicked out of our institutions because they're just not competitive. And we can apply for jobs as janitors at, uh, you know, 80 hours a week, um, no pay, uh, or, you know, get locked into factories and so on, uh, by factories owned in more efficient places like Thailand and China and so on. Uh, maybe that'll increase the economic pie, you know. So why not advocate that? I mean, you know, who cares if the corporations here die? Uh, furthermore, the outsourcing has nothing to do with economic efficiency. Uh, outsourcing is one of the operations that take place within command economies. The, country, the economy is run by a network of command economies called corporations. I mean, what goes on internal to a corporation or a mega corporation is not free trade. It's command economy. A corporation is a totalitarian institution. You know, it has a board of directors at the top, a manager who gives orders, everyone else follows them down at the bottom. At the very bottom, if you're lucky, you can rent yourself to it and get a job. And if you're sufficiently propagandized, you may even buy some of the junk they produce and so on. But uh, it's certainly not, it has nothing to do with what uh, you know, any classical economist would have called a free market. Outsourcing is just part of the technique Outsourcing is internal to the corporation, right? The corporation picks some supplier to outsource to and keeps them under control because then they can get much cheaper labor, uh, hideous working conditions, uh, don't have to worry about environmental controls. Uh, they get uh, inputs to themselves, which are very cheap, 
uh, that increase, for those of you who've studied economics, you know that that increases productivity. If you get artificially cheap inputs, that increases productivity, because productivity is measured in terms of, you know, value produced divided by the number of workers. So you get a nice measures of productivity, which have nothing to do with productivity. They just have to do with the fact that uh, you've got 20-year-old uh, women off the farms in China locked into factories and working until they die in a couple of years. Uh, that uh, is very healthy for the economy. Uh, but it's all internal to uh, com big command economies. Uh, that's one of the reasons why the concept trade is so ridiculous. I mean, what's called trade would certainly not have been called trade by Adam Smith. Uh, like, uh, you know, uh, outsourcing happens to send goods across the border into the United States, but it's under the control of a command economy. In fact, a network of command economies, which work the way I just quoted, you know, the oligopolistic uh, competition and strategic uh, integration. Uh, and the same is true of most of what's called trade. I mean, we don't have, nobody really studies this much, so you don't have really accurate numbers. But if you take the numbers that are guessed at by economists who look at it, uh, it takes a NAFTA. Uh, one of the great things about NAFTA is supposed to have been that it increased trade between the U.S. and Mexico. Well, it certainly increased cross-border transfers of uh, material objects. But is that trade? Well, it depends, you know. It turns out that the percentage of interaction that's intra-firm, internal to a command economy, uh, went from about 50% before NAFTA to about two-thirds after NAFTA. That's not trade any more than if GM shifts something from Indiana to Illinois. You know, happens across an international border so that you can take advantage of rotten working conditions and the uh, low wages and uh, uh, no environmental constraints, but it's no more trade than if uh, the Kremlin moved something from, you know, Poland to Hungary or something like that. Uh, it's, uh, uh, and in fact, it's very possible, if anybody ever bothered to study it, that actual trade has even declined since NAFTA. I mean, nobody studies it because it's the wrong questions to ask, you know, in the uh, ideological framework that we're supposed to accept. But if you did ask it, you might very well find that, just as it turns out after NAFTA that, uh, uh, you know, another great thing about NAFTA for Mexico is that foreign investment shot up, which it did. But a little footnote is that total investment declined because Mexican investment declined even faster than foreign investment went up for the simple reason that uh, Mexican businesses can't compete with highly subsidized uh, U.S. Uh, uh, corporate uh, systems. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so when you go back to the outsourcing story, it's just, you know, in, in an abstract world, what he's describing is true. In the real world, it just has nothing to do with what's going on. Uh, should we approve of it? Well, you know, that's not the only question. There are other op options. For example, another option is to work to improve working conditions, labor standards, uh, environmental conditions, and so on, in the places to which they are outsourcing. Okay, that'll tend to equalize the conditions. Is that a utopian measure? Not at all. It's been used. You take a look at the European Union. Uh, before the European Union integrated, uh, efforts, substantial efforts were made and substantial costs were uh, assumed to raise the 
level of the poorer countries, Portugal, Spain, and Greece, to raise labor standards, uh, to raise wages, improve conditions enough and get to the northern standards, but enough so that when they finally integrated, there wasn't a very severe blow against uh, the uh, wages and living standards of northern workers. Well, that's because they have a kind of social market economy and a more or less functioning democratic system. And the same could have been done with regard to NAFTA. In fact, it was proposed by the U.S. labor movement, but never entered the discussion. And the same, uh, because you know, corporate media are against it and the elites are against it, uh, but, uh, and the same could be true of the whole outsourcing story. So there are other options. It's not either let the command economies uh, maximize their own profit and power uh, or else uh, you, know, you don't have a job. There are, there are other options. Pardon? Um, I have a question with respect to activities, activities here at MIT. What is your I can't hear very uh, well. What is your opinion on the Institute of Soldier Nanotechnology here at MIT and its on the Institute of Soldier Nanotechnology and its Soldier Design Competition, which tries to involve undergraduate students into military-related research? Well, I, I don't know enough about it to say. Um, I mean, I would not want to comment on things I don't know about. I mean, so what this institute is doing, I don't know. I mean, I do know what was being done in the parts of MIT that I'm familiar with, starting with the electronics lab in the 50s and up to the near present, but not that one. So you have to ask, uh, what are they doing and why? And that requires knowledge of, you know, the details of what's happening. So you probably know, so why don't you answer the question? Oh, <laughs> I mean, you really have to know. You can't just, you know, have an opinion off the top of your head. And it probably is worth looking into. I mean, my guess, just by looking at the history of technology and MIT, is they're probably working on some, under some pretext or other, uh, to uh, develop what could be the profitable science and technology of the future, which will be handed over to private corporations. At least that's the tradition. Uh, if this breaks the tradition, it'll be interesting. But... Uh, thank you very much, Professor. Uh, I'm Vajiha Malik. I'm MIT alumni. Uh, so it was a little awakening for me that US economy works uh, by keeping the rich uh, happy and the poor frightened. But I was just wondering that with capitalism defined as the world order of today, is opposite ever possible, like keeping the poor happy and rich a little bit frightened? <laughs> uh, first of all, uh, you know, what uh, we have today doesn't remotely resemble what's supposed to be capitalism. Capitalism is supposed to be what Jagdish Bhagwati was discussing in this abstract model he had in mind in the op-ed this morning, uh, and what you study in neoclassical economics with uh, you know, free markets and entrepreneurial initiative and consumer choice, what Greenspan's talking about, but we don't have anything resembling that. Uh, I should say that even that one quote I gave about oligopolistic, I can't even say it, oligopolistic competition and strategic integration, et cetera, et cetera, it said that well, that's what we have, not the invisible hand of the market. Well, I don't know how many of you have ever read Wealth of Nations, you know, the famous, which you're supposed to worship at, uh, but the phrase invisible hand does appear in Wealth of Nations exactly once. 
and it's an argument against, against what's now called globalization. It's an argument against free movement of capital. As Smith argues, bad argument that although it'll be very harmful to England, what he cared about, uh, it'll be stopped by an invisible hand because uh, uh, merchants and manufacturers will have a home bias. They'll prefer to uh, invest at home, so don't worry about it, even though it's dangerous. Now, that's the one use of the term in wealth of nations. Uh, and you know, so what we have is nothing like capitalism. But can we have a city, a system in which? The poor benefit and the rich don't have to be made happy, and why not? I mean, you know, it's not a law of nature that uh, the, the economy, hence most of the society and the political system, are uh, in the hands of uh, high concentrations of capital, which are granted by the state. They're granted by state power, enormous rights. You know, the rights that are granted to corporations are an incredible blow against classical liberalism and classical economics. I mean, you know, Adam Smith uh, would turn over in his grave to see what's been granted to these basically totalitarian systems. I mean, they have been basically granted the rights, not only of persons, which is outlandish, but of pathological persons. They are required by law to be utterly pathological. I mean, it's a legal requirement deeply embedded in Anglo-American corporate law that the uh, managers of corporations uh, must be brutal. Uh, they must be the kind of persons who we would lock up if they were flesh and blood. They've got to, they're only, they are legally required to maximize profit and market share and not to do anything decent. Uh, the only exception, and this is a long history of corporate law, is they're allowed to do something decent if it's hypocritical. So if a pharmaceutical corporation wants to improve its image, you know, by giving free drugs to people in Africa or something, it's allowed to do it as long as it's pure hypocrisy. That is, it's a way to improve your image to increase profit. Otherwise, it's uh, legally culpable. You know? You're much more likely to get thrown in jail for that than uh, you know, Enron-style corruption, uh, because that's really the core of the system. Well, you know, that's just... Uh, it's not even legislation. These are just decisions by courts, you know, which have become the core of law. Do we have to accept that? I mean, it's like saying people had to accept Bolshevism or fascism or other kinds of totalitarianism. Of course not. Hi. Um, my, my, question, my question is about um, a recent Left Hook article or interview that uh, was just published online. And it seemed to me like you came out sort of in favor of a kind of anybody but Bush policy strategy for voting. Um, but I feel like, um, and I ask this question in the most comradely way because you inspire me and whatever. Um, but, uh, and I think we're in this, we're in this together, of course. But I mean, when you're, when you're talking, you, you kind of homogenize the administrations and you show the, the continuity in U.S. imperialism and, you know, in domestic uh, policy. I mean, you don't even quote the hardliners, right? That's like almost, you, you tend not to quote like the hardliners, you, you tend the, to quote the people what? like, like the hardline people, like the really far right people, you know, you no. quote the doves yeah. and stuff like that, who yeah. tend to be like Democrats and, and so forth. And you've mentioned that there has been progressive change, but that, I mean, generally it's come from below, like movements in the yeah, 60s exactly. and so forth. Um, I guess I, I don't feel like the Democrats could possibly represent an alternative to, 
you know, someone like Bush. And I think that change should come from below. And we need, no, you know, a third party. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I'm sorry. And, yeah, and I, I, I guess I just, even, even in the here and now, you know, like, we, we need to be working for an alternative. And that alternative is not the Democrats. You know, no, it's been I the completely Achilles agree. heel and of the left. I think if you read that interview, it says the same thing. Uh, but, uh, I mean, the reason I quote the doves, like I quoted Clinton today, mm -hmm. not Bush, you know, or not Wolfowitz and so on, mm -hmm. is precisely to show that the spectrum is quite narrow. In fact, if you, the spectrum is pretty narrow, but a spectrum is not zero. You know, there is, uh, there, there are differences within it. And even though those differences are not enormous, uh, in a massive system of power, uh, changes in decisions within a narrow spectrum can translate into huge effects for people. So in my opinion, I mean, these guys now in office, the people around Bush, who are basically the more reactionary elements of the Reagan-Bush-1 administration, uh, they are, I think, extremely dangerous. Uh, they've told us what the programs are, and they're implementing them. Um, they want to roll back the achievements of popular struggle for the last century. They want to roll them back and try to remove them irreversibly by institutional change. And they want to uh, dominate the world by force in a very frightening way. Well, that's a little, that's a little different from the policies of the political opposition. And those differences, I think, matter. Does that mean we shouldn't try and be trying to work for alternatives? Not at all. I mean, to say, look, uh, I'm going to make a rotten choice in the short term doesn't mean I shouldn't be working for better choices in the longer term. So crucially important in the United States, in my opinion, is not so much a third party as developing a democratic culture. That is a culture in which there really is the possibility of participation in uh, decision making. That's important. And, it, and we ought to be working on creating that, whether it's called a party or something else, uh, all the time, irrespective of what decision you make in, uh, you know, when November or whatever it is comes around. Uh, so I don't think there's any contradiction between what you're suggesting and what I was saying, and I believe in the interview, I at least tried to make that clear. There is a choice to be made about which, uh, uh, who's going to have their uh, uh, hand on the on massive political power, and I think those choices, some often I haven't, thought so, but this time it seems to me they do matter. Thank you very much. No, this is a joke. <laughs> uh, Professor Chomsky, thanks. And um, two, one very quick question, then one more real question. Uh, the first one would be on the incident that you mentioned in 95, the missile where they were two minutes away. If there's a source, you know, yeah. for further information on that. Yeah. Um, it's public information. It was January 1995, and it's uh, you know, publicly. I, mean, I can. I don't have it offhand in my head, but I can find a source for you. Not hard Nuclear to find. Policy Institute. They have a source. Yeah. What Nuclear Policy Institute. I was just okay. told has it uh, documented. Okay. Great. Thanks. And then the other one is, um, you know, uh, on the social on the uh, socialization of risk and uh, cost uh, and cost exactly. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of us here who hear you talk are then, then have the task of leaving and trying to gently bring people around to understand some of these issues. So uh, it, with that in mind, I was hoping you could sort of flesh out a little bit 
Um, for me in particular, it comes up with the biotech and the pharmaceuticals. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe if you could take the case of the AIDS drugs and how, you know, there's this quote-unquote moral impetus to put it to get to lower the cost for poorer countries. Maybe if we could, ex if you could explain a little bit how yeah. this funding really was public. Yeah. Oh, the, yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's very little careful economic analysis of this. The only serious study I know of the pharmaceutical industry and its reliance on public funding is by a very good economist named Dean Baker. It's about three or four years ago, uh, who uh, he did the obvious analysis, which everybody should have done all along and still should be doing. Uh, the pharmaceutical corporations make huge profits, and they claim that they need the profits because they innovate, and you know that's how you get drugs and so on. Make the rich happy, something will work for you. Uh, well, he raised the obvious question. He said, "How much of the R&D for the pharmaceutical companies is publicly funded?" Okay, and suppose we just increase that to 100 percent, and then force them to go on the market with their drugs. Okay, like you, let's say we believe in capitalism just for the fun of it. Uh, so uh, we say, uh, well, he ch he did an, an analysis, and it turned out at the time he was writing that roughly 40 percent of the R&D was public, which is a very serious underestimate, as he points out, because the corporate part of IND is a lot of it is just pure waste. I mean, it's copycat drugs and other marketing things, you know. And of course, this excludes altogether the basic biology, which is all publicly funded, on which everything rests. But even taking that underestimate, let's say it's 40 percent, uh, he said, okay, let's raise it to 100 percent, so that eliminates the excuse uh, that we have to have huge profits. And then let's make them work on the market, sell their drugs at market prices. And he estimated what the likely benefits to consumers would be, and it's just astronomical. I mean, it was something like, you know, 50 times the total anticipated gains from uh, uh, the World Trade Organization. You know, anticipated gains were mostly fake. Uh, some huge uh, uh, consumer benefit. That's one of many indications of how uh, uh, highly inefficient the corporate system is. Now, let's go on to what they, there's much more than that. I mean, every day, as good economist Jeff Sachs has pointed out, uh, every day, every single day in Africa, thousands of children, maybe five or six thousand children, die every day from easily preventable diseases. Easily preventable. We could stop it with a couple of cents, you know, pennies, really. Well, you know, that's a couple of 9-11s every day just among children. Okay. Why don't we do it? Well, because... Uh, of what's called the 90-10 rule in the pharmaceutical and industry, the health industries, that 90% of the uh, research and development goes for 10% of the uh, so-called diseases. You know, some of them aren't even diseases. It's like having too many you know, wrinkles on your face or something. Uh, but the, there's huge amounts of uh, it's a, you know it is a quasi-market system which means the decisions of the corporate executives who are by law necessarily pathological, that's required, uh, must be to produce things that will sell on the market, which means to rich people. Well, those thousands of children are dying every day in Africa and don't have any money. 
So therefore, you don't produce the drugs that could save their lives. What you do is uh, produce uh, things that will uh, reduce wrinkles on, for rich people, because that's where you make money. And that's a legal requirement. It's the core of Anglo-American corporate law requires them to do that. Well, you know, this is just really pathological. Uh, and in a sane system, you would be producing uh, pharmaceuticals for people who need them. Okay? Uh, just like you'd be giving health care to people who need it, not people who can pay for it. Uh, and, uh, uh, and that could happen if, it, if these were uh, under, public under public control in a democratic society. Because I, I am strongly suspect that if this ever came to a vote, you know, if people were told the facts, you'd probably have 95% of the population agreeing with what I just said. But it's just not allowed to enter public discussion. You know? So nobody knows about it unless they you know, really look into it and do research projects. Uh, but yeah, that, so that's, and this generalizes over the whole pharmaceutical industry. And similar things can be said about biotech. I'll try to keep the answers down. Okay. Yeah, I'll try to shut up. This is what she's telling me. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Politely. We just, we just have a few more minutes. Um, if the, the, the two people who are at the mics right now, if you could both just ask your questions, one okay. after the other. And, and I'll try to give a short answer. answer. Yeah. One answer. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like, okay. I don't know. Uh, Professor, my question, you mentioned before about the potential conflict in the future with China. And over the last few days, reading on various different newspaper sources and other sources, I found that the U.S. is proposing an international partnership to go into space, which includes every spacefaring nation in the EU, Russia, and Japan, but leaves China out. Number two, the U.S. visa requirements have been altered specifically against China and for the U.S.'s reciprocal nations to focus against Chinese citizens to make it much more difficult for them to obtain visas. And number three, in Wait, what was number three? Okay, anyway, I can't remember it right now, but there was a third specific issue in which the U.S. was Penalized showing extreme bias against China or China's allies in particular. And mentioning with what you were before, how you're looking like this may be the future way of which international competition between these countries is going to go, what is your thought on this? Do you think that this can be stopped before we get into another uh, what's Cold these, World type situation? Yeah, what's the source on the uh, agreement about excluding China from the international space? The, I didn't see it. Yeah. I read in the BBC, in the New York Times, New York on Times? Guardian, and in the Chinese news. If you could do me a favor and yes. email it to me. Okay. Yeah, I'd like to see it because I missed it. Uh, but it makes sense. I mean, uh, the, if, if, if you ask, for example, why is China trying to carry out a moonshot? I mean, I don't know what's in their heads, but I think a possible guess is that they are challenging the U.S. doctrine of ownership of space. You know, uh, they're saying, no, we're not going to allow you to own space. Uh, a moonshot, you know, undoubtedly is going to be part of the militarization of space program. And they're saying, well, you know, you're not going to get a free ride. Uh, the U.S. is very much worried about Northeast Asia uh, uh, for very good reasons. Uh, Northeast, not just China, also Japan and South Korea and so on. 
Northeast Asia is the most rapidly, it's the most dynamic economic area in the world. It's growing much faster than anywhere else. Uh, it's got a GDP well beyond that of the U.S. It has major industrial economies, Japan and South Korea, China's growing, has plenty of resources uh, in eastern Siberia. A lot of the jockeying in the Middle East now, but who's, you know, which way the pipelines go and so on and so forth, has to do with this. Has to do with the U.S. trying to maintain control over energy resources uh, so that uh, Northeast Asia uh, doesn't have its own independent resources, and they have plenty right in the region. Uh, so that's a major area of potential conflict, uh, and China's right at the heart of it. On the other hand, the uh, U.S. is ambivalent towards China, because uh, on the one hand, it, you know, st strategically speaking, it regards it as a potential threat. I mean, on the other hand, for Walmart and uh, you know, Dell and so on, China is just a gift. I mean, it has super cheap, uh, hopelessly exploited labor under miserable, miserable conditions, rotten human rights laws, and so on and so forth. So that's just perfect for investment or for getting cheap goods for Walmart and so on. So there's kind of a split. I mean, what's called the Chinese economy is very largely foreign-owned. Uh, mostly by overseas Chinese, you know, in Taiwan, Hong Kong, and so on, but also by U.S. corporations, big ones, Microsoft, Dell, you know. So, uh, so there's a kind of a split, and it's hard to know which way it will go. I mean, the U.S. is trying to get China to open up. It, uh, China has not followed the neoliberal rules, uh, and like other countries that haven't followed them, it has developed. Uh, but there's a big effort being made to f compel it to do so which would mean, for example, to compel it to open up its financial institutions to U.S. takeover. Hmm? That was the third one? Yeah. U.S., yeah. They want them to fiddle with the exchange rate, but more fundamental than that is to let U.S. Uh, banks uh, take over the uh, Chinese financial system. Once you succeed in doing that, a country has lost its sovereignty. I mean, that's why they forced that on Iraq, you know. They got to allow the whole thing to be taken over by U.S. institutions. Uh, and it's not clear that China will agree to that. And that's a major source of conflict. I think you're right. Last question. Last question, I'm afraid. <laughs> Quick question on the U.N. Um, Kofi Annan and others are now urgently, or calling, stating the need for urgent reform of the U.N. in light of um, the Security Council's recent behavior. Um, and I wondered if you could deconstruct that Look, there's a basic problem about the UN. Bas I mean, there are you know, there are a lot of problems about too much bureaucracy and corruption and this that, and the other thing. But there's a fundamental problem, and that is the UN can only act insofar as the great powers allow it to, and that means primarily the United States. So the UN can act if the US authorizes it, and cannot act if the US blocks it. Uh, that's why it is so important that uh, for the last uh, about 40 years, since the UN sort of fell out of control, the US is far in the lead in vetoes. Britain is second, and nobody else is even in shouting distance. Uh, that's because the US and its British, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, partner is the technical term, uh, the, uh, uh, just uh, will not permit international institutions to interfere with their plans. And that's the core problem at the UN. Uh, everything else is significant but peripheral. 
But that's a problem that has to be solved here. You know, they can't solve it at the UN. What do I mean? What does Kofi Annan mean by reform? Yeah, he mean, I mean, it's probably right. You know, the UN is extremely corrupt. There's too much bureaucracy. They waste money, you know. I mean, all kinds of things wrong with it. So there's plenty of room for reform, just like there is in the city administration in Boston, I suppose. But all of those reforms are marginal as compared with the crucial fact that the UN cannot act except as authorized by the United States, and that's our problem, yours and mine. We're the only ones who can deal with that problem, not Kofi Annan. I mean, just to give you an illustration, one simple illustration, uh, when the, uh, you remember when, when the International Tribunal for uh, Yugoslavia was set up, uh, it looked for about uh, 30 seconds as though it was going to investigate NATO war crimes in the bombing of Serbia. It was a very brief moment when they indicated they might look at that. Well, they, they, they were quickly called on the carpet by the State Department and said, you know, none of that business. But more interestingly, there was, there was a U.S. congressman, I forget who, visiting in Canada at the time, and he was interviewed by the right-wing national press, the National Post, and asked uh, the, the uh, uh, chief judge, was Canadian at the time, uh, what would happen if... Uh, what would, how would you react in Congress if uh, the tribunal investigated NATO war crimes? He said, simple, uh, we'll take the uh, UN buildings apart brick by brick and throw them in the Atlantic Ocean. Well, East River, I guess. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's basically it. He had, and as long as we permit that relationship to exist, uh, the UN can't reform. all of you for being here. I have one final sort of tacky but important announcement. This building is going to be used again at 4 o'clock and it would be really helpful if you would take your trash with you when you leave. Thank you to Professor Chomsky.